Well, I know we have visitors this morning. Welcome. We're so glad you're here celebrating with us. And uh, last week, we had some visual aids in our sermon, and so I'll make reference to them, but it won't make any sense if you weren't here last week. So I brought up some, some buckets last week. And I can tell you not to, to boast, but just to share with you that the response from last week's sermon was um, probably the most um, the most number of people with the most number of positive comments I've ever gotten. So apparently visual aids are helpful and important. So I'm no dummy. I'm bringing the buckets up again. And didn't our Lord Jesus teach in this manner? Consider this tree or consider this mustard seed everyday objects from people's lives to help bring spiritual truth home. That's what a parable is, aligning a spiritual truth alongside a a physical truth from the natural world. And how do we understand spiritual things? These are things we cannot see and must understand by faith. And so Jesus would use tangible things to help us understand abstract concepts or spiritual truths. And so these buckets came to represent for us what? Our worldview, our view of the world, our view of reality, our interpretation of reality, our philosophies in life, or our story, our story, our interpretation of story, the story we tell. A worldview is a very popular saying 10, 20 years ago. It's kind of becoming replaced in evangelical vernacular with this concept of story, um, meta-narrative. Narrative, a meta-narrative is the story that explains all other stories. And as Christians, we are proclaiming to the world that God's Word is the meta-narrative. It is the story that explains all other stories. Yes, your life is a story, but God is writing that story. You may have thought you were writing the story, but God is writing your story. And when we root and ground our story in God's story, then our life has makes sense, it has purpose, it has ultimate meaning and purpose. And so as our world tells us, you can write your own story and you can be whatever you want to be and you can believe whatever you want to believe and whatever truth is to you is truth to you and whatever truth is to me is truth to me and somehow this is actually going to work, we know that can't possibly be right. If what is true to you is different than what is true to me, then either we are both wrong, or one of us is wrong and one of us is right, but we can't certainly both be right if our truths are in contradiction. And so as Christians, we are those who recognize that God is the author of truth, the source of truth. He created reality. He defines reality. And we are eager to know God and know His reality and live in that reality. And we said last week that often we will create these buckets, these smaller worldviews, these smaller stories, because it shrinks life down to the manageable. Where do we get that inclination, though? We go back to the garden and we see that from the beginning, man rejected God's truth and wanted to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I want the right to determine my own truth. I want the right to determine what will bring me happiness. I want the right to define who I am as a human being. And that has been 
in the hearts of men ever since the garden. We've all inherited that sin nature. That is the very rebellion that the Bible calls sin, but it also leads us to acts of rebellion, which the Bible also calls sin. So we are all guilty of sin, but we sin because we're sinners. We don't become sinners after we sin. Why would anyone want to sin against God? He's perfect and He's loving and He's created this beautiful creation. What is it in us that makes us want to rebel? It is this sin nature we've inherited. And so Jesus came to die to pay the penalty for our sin nature and our individual sins and give us a new nature, a nature bent towards accepting God's bucket and replacing our little buckets with His big bucket. And we said, as we grow in Christ, we should start to replace our bucket, our worldview, with his view of the world. So, there are the buckets. And I'm going to leave them out here and refer to them in this sermon as well. If last week we asked the question, um, how should the world, how should we as Christians view God's law? Today we're going to ask, how should God's people engage the world? So we have a right view of God's law now from the last two sermons, and we realize we're living in a world of lawlessness, those who've rejected God's word and his revelation and his meta narrative. How do we live in such a world? Well, in years past in our culture, Christian thought dominated the culture, so it wasn't too hard to live in the culture and engage the world. But things are a-changing, are they not? Really, we could point to a lot of reasons for the change, but this past July, our country had an anniversary, and most people didn't realize we did. But we had the 90th anniversary of a very important event in our country's history. Does anyone know what that 90th anniversary was? See, nobody knows because we don't talk about it. It was the Scopes Monkey Trial. In 1925, the Scopes Monkey Trial, a biology teacher in the Midwest didn't want to teach creationism, and so he wanted to teach evolution. And even though he lost his case, it it laid the groundwork for evolution coming in the schools and then it replacing creationism. If we're going to write our own laws and not listen to God, then we need to get rid of God. Remember, we talked about that last week. So we need some reason to explain life and reality. And Darwin's theory of evolution was an attempt to replace what was always believed to be the reason for life. God was the author and creator of life. He created man in his image. And Darwinian evolution has replaced that philosophy with a different bucket. A different bucket. And the world responded in, in three different ways as our culture started to embrace this new teaching. It was fight or flight or befriend. Fight or flight or befriend. The fundamentalists decided to fight. And some really good things came out of the fundamentalist movement. It forced the church to say, well, what do we really believe? And we need to codify these beliefs. 
And these are the fundamentals of the faith. Yes, you must believe in the virgin birth. Yes, you must believe that God created ex nihilo, out of nothing. He created everything out of nothing. Yes, you must believe Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, you must believe He died and rose again supernaturally from the grave. And it it listed these things that we, we truly believe. And yet the problem with fundamentalism in the South was that um, they started to live in their own little bucket. And the culture kind of adopted what we called cultural fundamentalism. And when I talked to my seminary friends from the South, they're like, oh, everybody's saved in the South. Everybody knows Jesus. And, but they live like they don't know Jesus. As long as we don't drink or chew or date girls who do, I'm a good Christian. And it's very hard to evangelize in the South because everybody thinks they know Jesus because of that fundamentalist bucket. And when you stand in your fundamentalist bucket and you're angry at the culture and the immorality, you lose sight of the fact that you still have a sin nature as well. And it's very easy to point out what everyone's doing wrong while you're living in hypocrisy. And that doesn't reach the world. How many people has... Help me out, what's the name of that church in the south that stands on the corner with the God hates Westboro Baptist? I think Jesus said to the Pharisees, you travel over land and sea to make a convert, and when you do, you make them twice the sons of hell as yourself. I don't hear the gospel of grace and the love of God in that message. But then there were others who said, let's flee from the culture. They got in their yellow bucket. Maybe because yellow is the color of cowardice, right? (laughs) The culture's scary, and we'll just circle the wagons. And as long as we keep the world out of our home, sin won't find its way in. But they forgot something. How is sin going to get into the bucket? I just brought it into the bucket because I'm a sinner. And there was this false sense of security, this if we run in fear and hide, we'll be safe from sin. There was a, a, a third strategy. The liberal church in the Northeast said, let's just befriend the unbelievers. And they're kind of fun anyways. They're intellectual and... They have the good parties and the really good colleges. That didn't work out so well, the mainline denominations shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. Right? Because if you believe what the world believes, then what's the point in having a church? In the 50s, a movement tried to find kind of a a middle ground that National Association of Evangelicals, they moved out west. They, they started Fuller Seminary. They started the magazine Christianity Today. The Billy Graham Crusades came out of that. They, they did a lot of good. They were trying to engage the culture intellectually and spiritually. So pretty powerful movement. And yet... Word has it, and a good faithful word, 
In fact, it's one of uh, Nathan's friends who's trying to work on a doctorate at Fuller. He said it's hard to find a true believer on campus anymore. Fuller, a couple decades ago, dropped its belief in the inerrancy of Scripture. Once you have a Bible with errors, right? Where do you go back when you lose your way? So here we are, the evangelical church in America now. By really good estimates, 8% of our culture is truly evangelical. 85% of people in our... In America say they're Christians if they're asked. Pin them down, what do you believe? But when you start asking them what they really believe, it's more like 8%, which sounds discouraging. But hey, 8% of 350 million, give or take, they're saying there's about 25 to 28 million evangelicals. So um, that's good numbers, people. Those are people who believe in the inerrant word of God. So, we can still make an impact on our culture, but how do we engage the world without jumping into the red bucket or the yellow bucket? I want to answer that today by looking at Numbers chapter 14, because Israel was brought out of slavery by great signs and wonders and great power. God's given them His law. They've disobeyed God's law, and He has punished them, but He has also demonstrated grace and mercy, and He's ready to take them into the land, the promised land, for the purpose of displaying God's glory to the world, so the world will be drawn to the true and living God. And so we pick up our story with Israel poised outside the promised land, and they send in some spies, right? They send in some spies. And the spies come back and report that it is indeed a land flowing with milk and honey. Only one problem. It's filled with giants, pagans, Moloch worshipers, people who sacrifice their babies to their false idols. They live in wonderful cities that are heavily fortified. And some of the people are literally giants. They're descendants from the Nephilim. They're, they're big dudes, right? <laughs> and they've got weapons and they and walled cities. And Most of the spies were too afraid to go in and said we should go back. But two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua which is why people name their sons Caleb and Joshua. Right, by swingers? <laughs> they here this morning? No, I don't, I don't see them. Caleb and Joshua. They said, let's go in. So here, let's pick up the story here. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Oh, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord, in all caps there, Yahweh, why is Yahweh bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. 
Let's replace Moses with a leader who will take us back to Egypt. But Moses wasn't their true leader. Who was their true leader? Who was in the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire? Yahweh, God, is their leader. In essence, they're saying, let's replace Yahweh with another leader. Moses is just the poor guy who is chosen by God to represent God's leadership. Really, their beef is with God. God brought them out. God chose them. He saved them from Egypt, brought them out into the wilderness, and wants to bring them into the promised land. And so we could draw some parallels here. Not that the church has replaced Israel, but are not all these stories for our example, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. These are given as an example for us. Is this not where the church is today? We're already in the land, though, and, and the land is, seems to be slipping away from us. And God wants us to engage our culture, but there's giants out there. They seem to have the numbers, and you stick your finger in one hole in the dike, and five more spring a leak. And I'm running out of fingers, God. And when I view the task at hand from an earthly, humanly perspective, it indeed seems impossible. The giants are just too big, God. The culture's too far. It's going to hell in a handbasket. I will just make sure I'm in a different handbasket. But shall we sit by and watch the lost perish? Well, I'm safe. Hey, they made their choice. They made their bed. Let them sleep in it. I don't think that's the attitude God would have for us. Amen? Go in all the world and make disciples. He's commanded us. And so how do we do this in a way that will protect us? Well, they took their eyes off God. God was their leader. Those two spies were like, we've got God on our side. These people don't stand a chance. Listen to what they say here. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes. That was the symbol people would do when they knew their God was insulted. They tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out, it is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. So you see, we've got this fight or flight. Should we fight or should we flee? Go into the land or go back to Egypt? And many of us view that as our only two options today. Do we fight against the culture or do we flee the culture? Which bucket do you want to jump into? Look, confession time from the pulpit. One day I'm in the red bucket and the next day I'm in the yellow. And some days I think I have a foot in both. Some days I feel very bold to go 
engage the world. And other days I feel puny and I just want to get in this bucket and just, you know, <laughs> with my remote and, you know. Come on, it's why many of you moved up to Tehachapi. Let's be honest. But you can't run forever. The culture spreads. And remember what we said. If you found the perfect place to live as soon as you moved in it, there goes perfection. Yes, we are those redeemed by the blood of Christ and He is sanctifying us and it does make a difference. God's people can make a difference, but we can't lose sight of the fact that sin follows us. There still is residual sin nature in us until heaven. I wish we could talk to Aaron Barnett right now and say, what's it like being free from a sin nature? I mean, certainly the pain of the cancer, not having to deal with that. But I think the most glorious thing is going to be not having to fight against your sin nature anymore. Won't that be incredible? Finally, I can worship God the way He deserves to be worshipped without me getting in the way all the time. Wow. Amen. quote my sister over here from the park the other day. Can I quote you? Yes, okay. You know, she said, I think when we get to heaven, maybe we'll find out that, you know, we pray for people to get healed and some get healed and some don't and we feel like the ones who didn't, why didn't they get healed? Why, Why did I get the better end of the bargain? Maybe when we get to heaven, we'll find out, no, they got the good answer to prayer. They're home with Jesus and no sin nature and no pain and no suffering. He's got work for us to do then while we're here. How do we do this work? I want to briefly look at the life of Moses as a picture of a person who went through the stages of growing in Christ, growing in the Lord, growing in his relationship with God and how that changed the way he reacted to the world. And you know these stories because we've already covered them. So I'm going to go. I'm going to go fast. So hang on. How, how did Moses react to the world before he knew God? Remember, he was raised by Pharaoh's daughter, but for a season, he did get to go home as a baby and be nursed by his mother. So he got to hear about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The nursing process, don't just think of it as breastfeeding. It's, it's raising and rearing. So by the time he's 9 or 10, he's now in the palace and he's learning to be an Egyptian and learning Egyptian diplomacy and how to be the most powerful empire in the world at that time. So he's got a hodgepodge of world views, you think? And one day when he's about 40, we reckon, uh, it's Pretty much my age, I'm 43, so think back to either <laughs> when you were 40. I guess if you're younger, try to think forward. I don't know how that works, but you'll have a lot of wisdom than you do now. Trust me. Very humbled by who I was 20 years ago. I thought I knew everything. So I certainly know more now, but I know enough to know that I don't know nothing. 
just enough to stand up here and preach the Word of God, but I'll be learning for the rest of eternity. Amen? And so he's this brash 40-year-old prince of Egypt, and he sees his brethren, some Hebrews, you know, being mistreated by the Egyptians. And it says, uh, he looked this way and that. When he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. He's in this bucket. He's in the fight bucket. I'm angry. This is wrong. We want justice and we want it now. And I have the power to change an entire culture. And he kills somebody. But then he hides the body. That's flight right away. I mean, that's fight to flight all in one one scene. The next day, two Hebrews were fighting with each other, and he said to the offender, Why are you striking your companion? And he said, Who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Moses was afraid and said, Surely the matter has become known. And when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian. So we see this fight-or-flight mentality. Those are the only two options. Extreme options. Fighting to the point of murdering someone and then fleeing to the point of spending 40 years in Midian as a lowly shepherd. He ran from L.A. to Tehachapi. But God is God and He's sovereign and He found Moses. said, this is a man I'm going to use for my glory. When the Lord saw that He turned aside, this was when Moses was walking along and he saw the burning bush. God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet. For this place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. I've heard about this God from my mother. But I've never met him. I don't know him personally. And he hides his face. He was afraid to look at God. And then God tells him what his job is going to be to go to Pharaoh. And Moses says, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? At this point, he's thinking, Pharaoh's powerful. I don't know this God. I mean, the burning bush, that's pretty amazing, but... There's fear here. There's indifference. There's doubt. Give the job to someone else. Who who am I? Maybe some false humility. Uh, Who am I to do this job? Beloved, this resonates with you. I know it does when God calls us to witness for Him and, and to reach the lost. Who am I? Who am I? There's so many. There's 33 million Californians who don't know the Lord. That's over, that seems overwhelming. And sure, if you were the only one and God wasn't going to help, I wouldn't want that job. I tell you, on the days where I feel the most discouraged, the most depressed, and the most like I want to run and quit is the day I am trying to do the miracles. 
I need to get back on my knees and humble myself before God and remember who He is. He has the power. He has the glory. He will work the miracles. My job is to walk in obedience. Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? And what shall I say to them? And this is where God introduces himself personally to Moses. I am. Tell them I am sent you. Folks, this is where our relationship with God starts, and with any, anyone's relationship with God should start. You first must recognize that God is. That the world did not create itself out of nothing. That human life didn't create itself out of non-life. A creator did all of this. Well, who created God? No one. I am. I always have been. I always will be. He's the great I am. How did Moses view the world then after he knew God and His power? After he sees God do the ten plagues and part the Red Sea? Well, actually, right before, they're trapped in front of the Red Sea. And the people, they say, As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? These people are like, it's impending doom. And they're hurling out sarcasm at Moses. What, wasn't there enough graves in Egypt? You had to take us out here to die? I know, I can't help but say that line without using like a Jewish voice. What, there wasn't enough graves in... In Egypt? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt? I told you so. I told you this wasn't going to work. Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. It would be better to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, because now he knows God's power, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. It's kind of redundant. You will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Suddenly we see this man with great confidence and courage. What changed? He knows God. He knows His power. Moses didn't have to get him out of the jam. God would. And he was going to get all the glory. Now, Moses understood God's power, but he didn't understand God's faithfulness yet. You've got to get in a few jams with God and have Him bail you out to understand My God is faithful. We teach our little ones faithfulness, but they don't know faithfulness yet. They will. Because life happens, amen? And so we preach on God's faithfulness and tears come to your eyes because you've been through so much. But our our kids, if 
they've been fortunate, haven't been through a whole lot yet, and they don't know God's faithfulness, but you've got to tell them about God's faithfulness. Tell them the stories and tell them again and again until they say, we know this one, Dad, and you told it wrong. (laughs) All right, they know the story now. Remember when they needed water in the desert, right after the Red Sea crossing. Give us water that we may drink. Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us? And our t- It's a broken record, right? It's only been three days since they went through the Red Sea. So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, and get this, what shall I do to this people? See, Moses is excited about God and his power, but these people, eh. A little more and they will stone me. Exasperation, anger, and concern for his own life. That's the kind of attitudes that cause us to get into our yellow bucket. I... I'm done with the world. I'm so done, they can just... Fine. You can have the arts, you can have the universities, you can have the TV, you can have the movies. Just leave me alone. How did Moses view the world after he knew God's faithfulness? And this is after the golden calf incident. By now, God has really shown himself faithful to Israel. He's, he's had so many opportunities to say, I am done with these people, and yet he continues to come through and come through and come through. And then he decides to test Moses. And he tests Moses by taking on what would normally be Moses' attitude after all this grumbling and complaining. So God's going to act like a human for us. To put us to the test. Nathan taught us this passage. You know, they call this anthropomorphic language. God stooped to our level to teach us a lesson. And he says to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. They're stiff-necked. Now, then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. I'll start over with you, Moses. So, God's getting in his red bucket here. That's it. We'll just wipe them out, start over. I've had it up to here with these people. Let's see how Moses responds. Has Moses been learning and growing in his relationship with God? Moses entreats the Lord as God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak saying, with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and destroy them from the face of the earth? Oh, turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as a star. He's repeating the Abrahamic covenant back to God as if God needs to be told. It's a test for Moses and Moses is, is, his worldview is coming into alignment with God's and he's understanding, wait a minute, God did this great thing for a purpose to magnify his name among the nations and I would love for him to wipe these people out because I'm kind of sick and tired of them too, but hey, if we do that, the pagan nations are going to 
not give glory and honor to your name, Lord, they're going to say, wow, I thought he made a promise with these people. I guess he either breaks his promises or he's too weak to fulfill his promises. And so he's concerned for God's name and God's fame. And as we get to know God better and His faithfulness, it takes us out of our buckets and into God's world. And we want to see God's name made great among the nations. And it's what sends our missionaries out and what will send you out into our culture and engage the culture. Man, I got a great God. I don't care what you say about Him. You're wrong. He's awesome. And jumping into one of these two buckets isn't going to bring great fame to my God's name. How did Moses view the world before he knew God's glory? So he knew God's power, he knew God's faithfulness. Does he know God's glory, though? Here's Moses after the golden calf incident. On the next day, Moses said to the people, You yourselves have committed a great sin. You yourselves have committed a great sin. And now I'm going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin and they have made a God of gold for themselves. Can you believe the idolatry, God? Mm. But now if you will, forgive their sins and if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. A very bold Offer by Moses. Now, theologians disagree on this point whether Moses had a heartfelt love for the people and was like, take my life instead of theirs. Or if what Moses was doing was being magnanimous and saying, you know, I'm not like them, so take my life instead as a bold gesture. Scripture doesn't, doesn't answer the question there. The Lord said to Moses, though, and I think by God's response, it tells me that maybe Moses was being magnanimous. He says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. It's not the way it works, Moses. They did the crime, they're going to do the time. But go now and lead the people where I told you. Do what I told you to do, Moses. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Perhaps Moses saw himself as holy compared with the other idolaters. Now I know everything we've been reading here points us to Christ, and certainly Moses is a type of Christ in that he led God's people out of slavery. And we might say he's pointing us to Christ here in that he was trying to give his life as a ransom for many. But God did not accept Moses' deal. If he was truly a type of Christ, God would have accepted Moses as a substitute. But I think what we're seeing here is that no earthly man can be a substitute in this way. It is pointing us to Christ. It's pointing Moses to, to Christ too. 
Moses, there's a lot of things you can do to lead your people, but you can't be their eternal Savior. After, God, after Moses gets a view of God's glory, things change in his perspective. Moses said, I pray, show me your glory. And he said, God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and I will be gracious. Listen to this. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. That's my decision, Moses. And I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. So for the sake of time, let me paraphrase. He puts Moses in the cleft of a rock and passes before him and lets Moses, he covers Moses' face and lets him see the trailing end of God's glory. Which was enough to just blow Moses away and he he shone, he, he glowed after that. And it says here, Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. Here's how God revealed himself to Moses. He said, I am the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, and yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. When Moses got to see God's glory. It put him in his place. And he fell to his face and bowed down. And listen to how his words change now. If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, and that's your decision, Lord. It's your decision. I, I, I can't earn your favor. If I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray... Let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate, and pardon our sin and our iniquity, and take us as your possession. For the first time, really, we see Moses lumping himself in with Israel. You are holy, God. I am not. We are sinners. You are holy, He's understanding God's grace. So when we go back to Numbers and they're standing outside the promised land and the people don't want to go in, Moses' response now that he knows God, knows His glory, and knows his own sin, he first asks God, don't wipe this people out. I'm concerned for your fame, like he said before. That's Numbers 14, 11 to 16. But then he says to God in Numbers 14, 17, I pray let the power of the Lord be great just as you've declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant loving kindness. He's repeating back to God. He knows who God is now because God has revealed to him. He's out of his bucket. He's out of his, his own view that he's made in his mind of who God is and it's been replaced with reality. God has told Moses who God really is, and God has accepted that as truth. You are a God who is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and on he goes. So then, pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you also have forgiven this people 
from Egypt even until now. And the implication in the Hebrew grammar is that this people is inclusive. Moses puts himself... It's not those people. It's, it's this people. Are you still thinking of the world as those people? Or do you understand that God is God, people are people? The only thing that's different between us and the world is we are those who should have humbly recognized our sin before a holy God and have received the free gift of Jesus Christ. It's the only difference. It's a huge difference. It's an eternal difference. But it doesn't suddenly make us better than everyone else in and of ourselves. Now we can engage the world with that attitude. You know, most people don't know this, and I learned something new about Moses. We know that later he hits the rock twice when God says, speak to the rock, and the water comes out, and God says, you've disobeyed me, Moses. You've forgotten that I'm God and you're not. And so your punishment will be that you're not going to get to see the promised land. Yes, Moses is in heaven. Moses has inherited the great promised land, Moses didn't ever get to go into the promised land. And you're like, well, I knew that story. And Moses humbly accepted that. No, he actually didn't humbly accept that. Listen to Deuteronomy 3.23. He says, I also pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? So, He's saying truths about God as we should when we are ready to make a request of God. And he says, Let me, I pray, cross over and see the fair land that is beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me on your account. It's Moses. Folks, let's not put the heroes of the faith up on a pedestal too high. They're people like us. The Lord was angry with me because of you guys. And he, would, he wouldn't listen to me. And the Lord said to me, Enough! Speak to me no more of this matter. Wow. So what's the takeaway then? How should God's people engage the world? Should we do fight or flight or befriend? Yes. And no, as Christians, we should neither attack the world, abandon the world, or appease the world. We are called to reach the world for Christ, but we must always remember first and foremost that our residual sin nature tempts us to substitute ourselves for God and replace God's view of the world with our own. If you forget that and choose to fight, you will blow it. You will become a legalistic, hypocritical Pharisee. You will shove religion down people's throats while breaking God's commands all the while. And if you choose flight and you forget that you're a sinner, you will bring sin right into your quote-unquote safe space. And if you try to befriend the world without remembering that you do have a residual sin nature, before long you will become the world. God said, whoever makes friends with the world becomes an enemy of God. 
But as our culture rejects God, God cannot be mocked, right? Lives are going to fall apart as you reject God and you reject His meta-narrative. And if we are humbly living in, in the light of God's grace and truth, people will come to us and seek answers. And if you start with knowing, finding out if they know God's power, do they know that there's a God? Do they know that He's Creator? Do they know of His faithfulness to save? Have they received the gift of eternal life, the free gift of eternal life through faith in Christ? Do they know God's grace? If Once they start to progress in that area, then you can say, they're going to ask, how can I sh- love my God that has saved me? Walk in His ways. Let's pull this falsehood away and replace it with God's truth. You don't start with, you need to stop being a fornicator. You need to stop being a this. You need to stop being a that. You need to change genders. You need to whatever. Do they know God's power? Do they know God's faithfulness? Do they know His glory? Once they become a believer, then you disciple them to become a follower. And that's when you start talking about these other issues. I know you're afraid to engage the culture because these issues are hot-button topics and we do have to talk about them, but you don't start the conversation there. Right? Tell them about your life before you knew God and the power and the faithfulness and the grace He has shown in your life. And then invite them to know your Jesus. And then build a relationship with them and start discipling them. Amen? Don't don't try to make a disciple before God works a miracle in their heart. You'll just create a moralist. And God's not happy with that. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. What an awesome day. You are at work. In this just one church, and you've got thousands and ten thousands of churches, churches known and churches unknown, underground churches, visible churches. And look what you've accomplished just here in this place. God, you are powerful and amazing and at work, and we don't need to be afraid. Give us boldness with humility to reach the world with the saving message of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.